else. But I mean, I love this state, but I also love cold weather. So sometimes I wonder, should I have been born about, you know, another country up? But no, I love it here. We got a lot of people sick right now. It's just, it's that time of year. Um, my daughter's one of them. She's at home. She's been, she's been under the bug, and we've got some other pieces of our family. They're sick, too. So I want us to do this really quick. Um, if we could, just as, as Origins family, if we could pray. If you know somebody that's sick, uh, just take a second before I pray and pray for them. Uh, the flu is no joke this year. Uh, it is not messing around. I had it this time last year, and I really thought that my legs were broken and everything in me was broken, and I don't want to get that ever again, and so it's just rough. Uh, so if we could, before we go on any further, just take a moment, uh, pray for the people by name that you know that are unwell, that God would heal them because that's in his purvey. He can do that, and uh, just pray that they would get back quickly, and then I'll close this uh, before we jump in. God, we're grateful that you're a God that hears uh, the prayers of your children uh, who have been bound to you by Jesus. This morning, God, we pray for those that are in the Origins family that are just unwell and that are sick and that are fighting uh, the mess that comes with this time of year. Uh, it can be serious for some and not so serious for others, but it's just, it's no fun across the board. So God, we pray for those, the names that were lifted up just a moment ago, um, and maybe even the ones that we're, we don't know about. God, you do. And so we pray that uh, the healing power of your son uh, through the spirit that lives in us would be upon them, um, that he would, would take away their, their infirmity, and that he would heal them, God, and it would be for your glory and your name. And God, we just thank you for hearing our prayers. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are in, uh, thank you for doing that, by the way. Uh, we're in week two of kind of this Who We Are series, like Stephen talked about last week. Uh, we just, man, we talked about some of the commonalities uh, of between all of us, what it means to like be a disciple. And, and we talked about, you know, a lot of times our, our nomenclature, our naming has been Christian, but if we think about it in terms of actually being a disciple, there's more responsibility placed on it. Uh, there, there's an identity shift that occurs uh, that with it comes some roles and responsibilities as a result of being a disciple. Last week, the commonalities as we looked at Peter's calling uh, specifically was uh, Jesus asked Peter to take a step of faith universal for all of those who call on Jesus. We have to take a step of faith, trust him with our stuff instead of our own selves. Um, and then after that, uh, it wasn't just a step of faith, but it was this idea of when you get, catch a glimpse of the perfection and the holiness of God through Jesus that only occurs through faith that he invites us into, we see him, we see our sin, and when we see our sin, we're moved to confess, repent. Uh, pitching hit towards him. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We continue to do that. And then after that, it, he told Peter, and we'll revisit this a little bit today, he said, from now on, you're going to be fishing for men. And so there's an identity change. It's not just uh, we have changed our name, but like a heart level, we are different. We're new. First Corinthians tells us that you are a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. Look at this and know this. Um, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, so our identity has changed. And we even made the statement that we do what we do because of who we are. And this is a big deal. And what we have been made is we've been made ambassadors. We've been made takers, ministers, servers, like glorified waiters and waitresses in the name of Jesus. And the, the tray that we carry is the gospel. And we take that to people. Our identity has been changed. And so we talked about what that meant to be a disciple, what our identity was. And today, um, this is incredibly necessary for us. Like, that was the definition kind of a deal, a target on the board. But today, I just want us to look 
at what it means uh, for the responsibility aspect of being a disciple. Um, because if we left out this part today, our definition of disciple would be incomplete because there's something else that's attached to it that we have to hold, that we have to know, and that we have to understand. Um, and so we're going to look uh, at two statements that Jesus made, one at the very beginning of his time with his disciples, one at the very end, and then here's my goal. I want us to fill in the blanks in the middle to a degree. We're not going to be able to look at everything Jesus did between these two statements, but we're going to toss out a couple things um, that are going to tell us a little bit about what we need to do, how we need to do it. Um, so let me, let me pray again. I, I, I love this idea, and it's, it's so necessary, and it would be easy for me to chase a squirrel this morning. And I don't want to. Um, so let me, let me pray. For me, probably more than you. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would uh, be able to focus our thoughts and our hearts this morning. Allow us to think well about your son, about the words that he said, about the things that he did, and God, the things that he's invited us into as a result. I pray that your word speaks, um, and God, that our hearts are ready and prepared to listen and change. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, like we mentioned last week, we looked at Luke's um, kind of record of the, the final calling of Peter. Uh, we talked about that that was the second or maybe third encounter that Jesus had with, with these guys. Um, we don't really know. Uh, it could have been just Luke's detail-driven way of writing things, but in Matthew, uh, we see this account uh, in Matthew chapter 4, 18 uh, through 20, I think is what we're going to, 18 through 19. It says, while they were walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. For us, like our whole idea is that if we are going to reproduce something, I'm going to tell you that that's our goal, we have to know what that something is. Last week we talked about the commonalities of, of all disciples, what that looks like today. This is going to be our working definition for a disciple based on this, because we know what these guys did after this. We know what Jesus led them into, led them through, uh, remade them to be. And so I want us to look at this, this, this statement that we see in verse 19. He said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. From this, we're going to get three ideas about what a disciple is, like a definition, working definition. Uh, the first, he invites them. He says, follow me. Some translations are going to say, come, follow me. Uh, the very first thing that we need to note about a disciple, and we have to note all three of these, the first thing is we have to understand that disciples are someone, or you're a disciple if you are A, following Jesus. Following Jesus. That seems very simple. Seems incredibly simple, mundane, to say, yeah, you're a disciple if you're following Jesus, because that's what a disciple means. It means to be a learner or a follower. But hey, this is the first characteristic, someone that's following Jesus. Here are the implications that we need to understand. In order to follow, very often we have to leave first. And that's the reason the translation, if we open up the Hebrew and we look, it's not just follow me, but it's come, leave where you are, follow me. Choose to tuck in behind me like we talked about last week. Walk where I walk, but not just where I walk, but as I walk. Jesus is saying, hey, come, follow me. In order to come and follow, they had to leave. For us, sometimes it's not so much a geographical leaving. It can be. not going to limit God in that. But most definitely, universally, it is. We have to choose to leave sin. We have to choose the thing that defined us before. Scripture said we were formerly sons of disobedience following the prince of power of the air, we have to leave that in favor of Jesus. And so the first qualification that we see of a disciple, first characteristic, is a disciple is A, someone who is following Jesus, chosen to abandon their sin, choosing Jesus over that, leaving to follow. 
the way that works out for us is, is we have to ask, hey, what did Jesus do? What did he say? How do I follow him? We don't have the physical image like the disciples did to actually walk behind, but we do have scripture. We have his words. We have the teachings. We have the church. We have the Holy Spirit. We have one another. We have all those things for, to understand what it means to follow Jesus, to emulate him, to be like him. The second thing, he said, follow me, come, follow me, and he says this, I will make you. The second characteristic of a disciple is not just are they following Jesus, they've left where they formerly were, or who they formerly were, but now I will make you, uh, someone that is uh, a disciple of Jesus is also someone who is be, being transformed by Jesus, being changed by Jesus. We've talked about this, that there are, there's active uh, sanctification and passive sanctification. Sanctification, that big, multisyllabic biblical word that just means we are being set apart and changed to look more like Jesus. And so we have the active roles, which the, the parts that we play, then we have the passive roles, which the Spirit is doing in us to make us more like Jesus. Either way, we have to go into this saying, look, if I'm going to follow you, I have to be as willing to follow you as I am as willing to be changed and transformed by you. See, Jesus will call us exactly as we are, but he doesn't intend for us to stay that way. If we say, hey, Jesus takes me just as I am, that's a true statement. But here's the, the other flip side, the truth of that. Jesus doesn't desire us to stay that way. He calls us when we were trapped and burdened by our sin. He doesn't want that to be our identity. He doesn't want us to stay that way. So he's going to ask us and do things in us that make us look more like son and by, his son. And by the way, God's son was sinless and holy, set apart. Am I saying that you're ever going to be sinless while you're here? No, but we should be striving to sin less and less. We're always going to have the war between flesh and spirit, and so there should be an active strive in me to abandon sin, follow Jesus, and allow him to change me, reshape me. So a disciple is someone who's, A, following Jesus, B, someone who is being transformed or changed by Jesus. And to be honest, we kind of have to let go of the reins of that and say, hey, God, make me into whomever, whatever you want me to be, wherever you need me to be, whenever you want me to get there, I'm, I'm okay with that. And that's incredibly hard. Remember the step of faith that all disciples have to make that we talked about last week, same deal applies here. We have to trust Jesus with the destination. I got to talk to a group of planters this week of, of future church planters, and God has smacked me in the face with this statement that, that he just, you know, kind of pushed me to make, and I thought it was about them, but it's been more about me. Um, we have to trust uh, God's craftsmanship over our plans. We have to trust God's craftsmanship over our plans. That means I may have a trajectory already set out for my life and plans, but it's God's craftsmanship, what he's making us into that we have to trust above everything else. And man, that's hard. Because sometimes what he's shaping me to be is not what I intended to be. But it's what he intended me to be, and, and I could argue that it's better. I think Scripture would agree. So maybe I'm agreeing with Scripture. Someone who is following Jesus, someone who is tra being transformed by Jesus, being, by the way, is that idea of being transformed by Jesus, not immediately changed to its final degree, but like being transformed continually over time. And then the third is this. We have to have this for a complete definition. He says, I will make you, I will change you. And what he's going to change this disciple into and us as well, he says, I'm going to change you into fishers of men. I'm going to give you a new identity, a new purpose, a new role, a new goal, a new deal. A new deal. Just like we said last week, he told Peter in no uncertain terms, he said, from now on, you're going to be fishing for men the goal is you're going to be going after people who need to hear and trust the same way that you have 
And that is going to be the goal. I think for a long time, um, for a long time, we've taken this third characteristic of a disciple and we've just placed it on people who are technically in the ministry. My son loves air quotes lately. And it's, it's funny. He's using them really bad, but it's still really funny. Um, Liza's going to eat her chicken nuggets. Yeah, she's really eating her chicken nuggets, Caleb. It's not... Anyway, so, like, I think we've taken this idea of being changed into people that are fishing for men and women, making disciples. We've just put that on people who wear a title, who have been through a certain line of education, or, or people who have been set apart by their church. But here's the deal. We've all been set apart. We talked about it last week. There's none of us that can escape this idea that our identity has been changed, reshaped for the glory of God, and God's ultimate glory is going to be that He pulls as many men, women, and children to Himself as possible. That's where His glory rests, and He's put every one of us on that mission. Everyone. Regardless of your gifting, uh, regardless of your past, everyone. We've all been placed on this mission of being fishers of men. But here's the other thing. At the very end when Jesus was, was leaving the disciples. Uh, if we flip over to Matthew chapter 28, um, think about the first things that he said. Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And then this is how he leaves them. 28 verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. There were twelve. But remember, Judas betrayed him and, and hung himself. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So he, he meets the disciples. He says, Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Be changed by me. Take on the new identity that I'm going to give you, the new responsibility that's going to attach. And from there to the end, a lot a lot of things occurred, but at the very end, he says, now as a result, not just as a result of power being given to me, but as a result of everything that's occurred, go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so the rest of the world will see that they follow me, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Give to them, convey to them everything you've learned from me. So he starts with, come follow me, I'll make you into something. And then over the course of the next one to three years, depending on how we look at it, he makes them into something. And then he says, now you're ready, now go. Go. So the question is, and this is the question that we have to ask, um, how did he do it? Because if, if Jesus was training these guys, these men, and plus several other hundreds that followed him, if he was training them to do this, therefore go, make disciples, we kind of have to ask the question, how did he do it? What did he do? Because we can read every book on discipleship that we want to. That's fine. If you want to be learned, do that. We can, we can go to every conference, but I think at the root of all of it, we just have to ask, hey, Jesus was the best discipler ever. How did he do it? And if he's calling us to emulate him, to tuck in behind him, walk where he walks, walk as he walked, love as he loved, live as he lived, do all those things, how did he, the chief disciple maker, how did he do it? Because that's what he wants to reproduce in us. And if our job, if our goal is to do this, how, how do we do it? And I think the answer is how Jesus did it. Uh, I, I do. I really believe it's just how Jesus did it. Now, granted, Jesus was the Son of God, perfect in all ways, 
uh, could resist all temptation, understanding like the, the idea that we put at the very end last week. Yes, we're called to be disciples, but none of us are perfect. We will fall. We saw it in Peter. We saw it in Paul. We saw that there were mistakes that they made, but we also saw repentance. So understand, we're never going to be perfect, but we have a goal. The goal is Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to look um, just kind of a few ideas as to how he did it. And then I'm just going to say it. This is what we need to do. It's what we must do, what we have to do if we want to make disciples too. Um, the first is this. Uh, let's go to Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 21. We're going to read straight through there. So shortly after calling them, this is kind of the first thing that they're going to see. It says, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This guy had a spirit in him, a demon. It says even the demons knew Jesus, and they feared, so this one did. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing in him, crying out with a loud voice, uh, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. We're going to pause right there for one second. Just keep that up. So the first thing that we see um, is there's a couple things. The way that Jesus made disciples, number one, he invited them in with love, asked them to take that step of faith, uh, to see him, repent of their sins, um, and then be willing to be changed, have a new identity. But right after that, after their willingness to do all of those things that were, you know, that were brought in by him, the first thing is he began to teach and equip. And that sounds rudimentary. It does. He began to teach and equip them. Yes, he did. He began to teach and equip them. But let me tell you how he did that. There were two ways. There were two ways. Um, A... He, he taught them truth. Like he conveyed truth to them. The very first thing they see is that he goes into the synagogue or the temple and he begins to teach. He wasn't just teaching to the masses. He was teaching to these 12 guys whom he had called. He was teaching them. He was teaching them with, with great authority. Um, scripture would even say like dunamis or the word that we get dynamite from, like power, explosive power. He was teaching them that way. He was conveying truth. And so he began to equip them with truth. As disciple-makers, as those who desire to be disciple-makers, um, one of two things need to be happening. We need to have truth being poured into us, or we need to be pouring truth into someone else, or maybe both simultaneously. Because as great as this is on Sunday mornings, like, I love this. I love a time for us to rally around Scripture, convey truth to the masses. To be, to be honest, the thing that we have to see about how Jesus did this, and this will be a backdrop for all of it, is every bit of it was intentional, it was relational, and it was powered by the Spirit of God. And most of the time, the great teaching that Jesus did to these 12 guys, it wasn't from, from on a podium, it wasn't from a boat, it wasn't from the side of a mountain down to a bunch of people. I would say a lot of it was just, man, walking along the way or sitting around a fire, or maybe in the midst of struggle. But there was a relationship involved, a relationship that Jesus fostered that he was intentional about, and so he conveyed truth through that relationship. The second thing that he began to do, even in this passage that we see here, is uh, not only was he conveying truth in word, but he was modeling truth in his behavior. He was modeling truth. He was also modeling the mission because right after he went in and started to teach, what happened? A man came in who was possessed by a demon, and Jesus, whose goal was uh, to reconcile, to make better, to heal the world, and he started doing it one person at a time while he was walking here. He said, I'm going to also show these disciples why I'm here. I'm here to fix what is broken. 
And so he began to model it. He, he chased a demon out of this guy right here. He began to model. So he began to equip them by teaching, and he began, began to equip them by modeling. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, and immediately they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought, him, brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick of various diseases, cast out, cast out many demons, um, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So he taught them truth, he modeled healing, but then he modeled something else too. He modeled that all of this it was not through his power alone, but it was through God the Father. He went away to pray. He did this repeatedly. There were several times in Scripture in which the disciples were like, hey, where's Jesus? And he's probably on the mountain praying again. Because Jesus, even though he was equal with God, did not consider himself to be equal at this point. He let go of certain parts and rights of his divinity, according to Philippians. He canoeed, he let go. And in this state and in this place, even though he was equal with the Trinity, he chose to subject himself by being slightly less than for a while. Not in value, but in glory. And so in this case, he removes himself because he knew that at the source of everything that he was going to do was God the Father. Taught truth, modeled the mission, and then modeled dependence. Taught truth, modeled the mission, modeled dependence. If we go about making disciples, reproducing the Jesus that is in me and someone else, and we're depending on our own strength, it's going to fail, and we're not going to want to reproduce that. It's just not going to work. Like, I've been in gyms a long time, and gyms make uh, sand-casted weights. And so basically, they take a casting, they make it out of sand, and they'll fill it with iron. And the first couple castings, they come out really, really good, very clean. They don't have to clean them up. But the problem is, the further they get away from the source, and the more times they try to cast it with that sand mold, the rougher it gets. And sooner or later, it's just no good anymore. If we try to reproduce disciples in our own image, in our own strength, they're just not going to be any good. They're not going to last. It's not that they're just going to be rough. They're just not going to look like anything, anything like what we started out as. Jesus said, you, you have to know truth, mission, God. So he began to equip them by teaching and by modeling. Finish this passage, and it says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And by the way, his teaching and his modeling, it wasn't a one-off. <laughs> like, it was continual, repeated over and over and over. Like, there's no one lesson that we can teach that will make someone into a great disciple. And there's many. These discipling relationships, they're, they're based on relationships, and, and while there's a terminus at them to a degree, these relationships never really end either. 
Like, I look at the guys that have mentored me through my life, and I know that at, at any given moment, even though, like, the formal time of them pouring into me over coffee or whatever it may be, even though that formal time is done, I know that they're like a text away for me to say, hey, Ken, man, I am burdened beyond despair. What do I do? You know, or Cliff, what do I do? I know those relationships haven't ended. The same way with Jesus. He, he didn't stop. He said, as a matter of fact, let's go to another town so I can do it again. So I can do it again. So he equipped them. He equipped them by teaching. He equipped them by modeling the mission. He equipped them to, to, be, uh, to model uh, through being connected to God. And one example of many. Here's the next thing. In our Mark passage, flip over to Mark chapter 6, verse 7. See that one? It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to even put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. The second way in which Jesus began to reproduce and make disciples was not only did he teach them with truth, not only did he model the mission, model dependence on God, but the second thing is, is he released them. He sent them. Like they weren't, they weren't ready to be done with Jesus. I mean, there was a lot more to go. I mean, you look at just the last 24 hours before Jesus was captured. He taught like, man, he taught an entire set of encyclopedias to these guys. But at this point, he knew um, that part of their journey would be responsibility, and he had to place it on them. If we're just always in the cradle, we're never going to grow. The cradle is going to be restrictive. We're never going to learn how to fly. We can take all of these examples from nature. You've got to spread your wings, you know. If you don't, you're not going to fly. But anyway, he knew, I've got to push them out a little bit. Not because they're completely ready, but they need to know, they need to learn, they need to grow. And he told them, when you go, don't take anything for your journey. Don't take money, don't wear an extra robe because you think you might get cold at night. No, no, no. Trust me, you're going to have a place to stay, you're going to have food to eat, and also you're going to have a mission in front of you, so go and do. And so he sent them. He said, if a place won't receive you, that's not the place for you. Trust me in my plan too. Just go, just go. So he sent them out. I think one of my mistakes, and I, and I admitted this to this group of guys on Tuesday night, um, one of my mistakes as a pastor, and, and J.D. would echo this in the early days of Origins, we didn't give away responsibility nearly soon enough. We didn't. We didn't want to burden people. Um, we didn't want to ask people who have busy lives to do things. But you know what we did? We robbed people of discipleship opportunities by not conveying responsibility. We were selfish. We, weren't, we didn't have faith in God to do in them what God needed to do, and, and we valued perfection over we valued people learning and growing in Jesus. That was a mistake. And I've had to confess that to several people, saying, you know what, I should have let you do this a lot sooner. I apologize, forgive me, because I robbed you of a chance to grow. In the life of a disciple, responsibility must be given because sometimes responsibility is going to be the best teacher that we can imagine, and in the midst of that responsibility, there's huge faith. God, I'm not ready. Of course you're not. I'm going to make you ready. Go. So when we're aiming to reproduce what God has done in us, look back at all the times in which people have trusted us with responsibility. I mean, think about your job, like your job. There's no way that hardly any of you went into a job knowing exactly how to do that job. 
Someone had to train you, whether it's flipping burgers or whether it's doing taxes or whether it's putting an IV in somebody's arm, which I'd love to try at least five times. That'd be great because I've been stuck so many times I'd love to stick somebody. But anyway, so if you want to teach me how to do that, I'll practice on your arm. Um, but either way, somebody taught you, and then they watched you, and then they critiqued you. So not only did Jesus send them out, and he told them, don't worry, you're going to be taken care of, but then when they came back, he kind of did this like debrief kind of a deal. So he equipped them with truth, with modeling of, of what the mission is, modeling with dependency on God. He released them at the appropriate time. But then, number three, he corrected and redirected when it was necessary. Like as far as the mission goes, the very next thing that we see happen chronologically right after he sent them out two by two in this passage is we see the feeding of the 5,000, which is probably more like 15,000, maybe 20,000. We see this thing. And, and the long story that goes out, I'm not, we won't read this. We won't read this passage in, Matthew, in Mark 6. But the long story is they came back, and he said, I, I know you're tired. They wanted to talk about everything is done. He's like, let's go away to a place by ourselves, and, and, and let's recharge. Let's rest. But on the way, people saw Jesus, and they're like, no, 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 that's Jesus. I've seen what he's done. I want to I get there before him. And it, so it says the place that they went to, by the time they got there, there was a multitude there. And it says Jesus got out and he went and he says that he had compassion on them, which is a stirring in your bowels that moves you to do something. That's what compassion means. And it says that he began to heal and he began to teach. And it says the hour grew late and the disciples said, hey, Jesus, it's late. Send them into the surrounding countrysides for them to eat something, find something to eat. And he said, you give them something to eat. Now, they had just been sent out two by two, right, to do the work of the Lord, trusting that he would provide. And he said, we're going to go away, we're going to rest, we're going to recharge, we're going to debrief. And they get interrupted. And then he says, oh, by the way, you feed them. This was Jesus redirecting and correcting because they thought the work was done. <laughs> they thought, God, I've, I've just gone and served you. I, I've, I've served you at my own expense, and I'm ready to rest. And he said, no, no, you're not. Not time. You feed them. And one of them even got a little lippy. They're like, hey, we don't have a lot. So you want me to go and spend all that we have and just feed like six of them? He said, see what we have. They found the little boy, a couple loaves, a couple fish. And then he said a blessing. And then he provided something miraculous, and they got to distribute. He was reminding them, by the way, everything you need, I will give you. All you have to do is pass it out. See, they thought their time was done. He said, no, 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 you're not done until it's over. And guess what? It's never over. You don't get to stop. And I know that sounds terrible, but Jesus is reminding them, yeah, you're going to get to rest at some time and things are going to be rough. I'm going to take care of everything you need. By the way, at the end of that miracle, it says that they took up 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 disciples, 12 baskets. I think that's pretty neat. Do the math, one to one. They got to eat, they got to recharge, but he said, not until it's over, not until it's done. There were other times uh, in Matthew chapter 16 where he did the same thing, except slightly different. Uh, it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him, being Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter, he said, Get behind me, Satan. 
you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Sometimes his course correction and his redirection was calling out sin. Calling out sin. You'd be like, well, I, I don't get it. Again, here, Peter, even though he was asked to trust in the things of God, was going back to his ways, and Jesus lovingly, because he was trying to reproduce disciples, said, I need to correct your thought pattern. I'm going to insult you and call you Satan to draw attention to the fact that, that you're thinking like a sinful person. Very often, man, the thing that we have to do, the thing that Jesus did, is we have to do the uncomfortable, and we just have to say, hey, you know what? Right now, you're wrong, and that's sin. Sometimes in our life, we need someone to do that for us. I couldn't count on both hands and, and all my toes how many times that somebody's had to tell me that I'm in sin. It's necessary. It's part of the journey. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. It hurts. It stings. It makes us want to fight back, but it's necessary because, by the way, we are training and we're pouring into people so that they look more and more like Jesus. Jesus, sinless, perfect, flawless, in spite of an onslaught of temptation. We're trying to reproduce that. And I'm a flawed model. So the flawed model needs to be called on the sin just as much as everyone else does. Redirection, course correction, very often means, hey, you're not just doing it poorly, but you're doing it wrong. Scripture calls that sin. But here's, man, here's the big deal. That can't happen. That can't happen unless there's a relationship first. Like a solid relationship first. I mean, it can happen. You can try, but it's not going to go very well. Neil, one of our elders, he's down in Camden today with family. Like his favorite phrase is like access and authority. We have to give people both, access and authority. Access to see all of our life because there's a relationship there, authority to speak into every bit of our life, good, bad, and ugly. And that means that when someone calls us out on sin, we hear them. We don't fight back. We're like, okay, let's, let's chat about this. Course correction and redirection. Course correction and redirection. Calls out sin, redirects when necessary. And, I, I, man, I love this idea of Jesus provides. We just get to distribute. Because a couple things. Number one, it reminds us that not our strength, not our mission, but we've been granted strength and we've been granted mission by Jesus, the one whom we're being fashioned after, made to look like, made to smell like, made to love like, made to be like Jesus. And then over the course of the next, next while, we, went, we watched Jesus rinse and repeat. I mean, that's not to make it sound stoic and... and you know, just not fun and not relational, but that's what he did. He just kept doing it over and over. Teaching, by modeling, by truth, by all those things, releasing to go and do, course correcting when necessary, until we find him in Matthew chapter 28. They had seen him crucified. They had seen him raised from the dead. Peter had denied him publicly three times, and Jesus had brought him back lovingly. He had seen all these things, and then they find themselves on the side of a mountain, and Jesus just says, now, therefore, as a result of all of this, go. At the appropriate time, when people are ready, we say go. Doesn't mean the relationship's over. Doesn't mean that, that we don't talk anymore. But by the plan, by the grace, and by the will of God, we've taken them as far as we can. And we say go. It's your turn. And the, the goal of all of this is that they do what they saw in you. They've seen you teach. They've seen you model. 
They've seen you release. They've seen you course correct and redirect. And they've seen you release for good. That's a disciple. A disciple is not just about seeing me become more like Jesus, but a disciple is about seeing uh, the possibility of others becoming more like Jesus and then seeing the possibility of others becoming more like Jesus and so on and so forth. It's worked for a couple thousand years, by the way. We've relied on other methods here and there. They fail. They may work for a little while, but this one, I'll be honest, if it's powered by God and it's through the, the confides of relationship, it works. It works. Hard? Yes. Painful? Yes. Dirty? Messy? Yep. But Jesus said, this is how I did it. You can too. Same spirit, by the way, that landed on Jesus, descended like a dove, gets to come and rest in us. And he says, go therefore, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all I've instructed you, and I'm going to be with you for every single bit of it. Father? All right, so we're back. Um, so here, here's what we do with this. Uh, throw, up, throw up that will for me. Uh, this is a tool we're gonna, we use it quite frequently. You're going to see it in community groups this week. You're going to be asked some questions about it, so don't. They kind of created. Um, and so basically it's the life cycle of a disciple. We love it because you can look at it. You can think about it. You can, you can apply some, some truth out of it to you. And so what we have to understand is that when we're called, uh, we're called to follow, we're called to be willing to be transformed, we're called to be willing to take on the new identity, um, we're not quite ready yet to make disciples there. Like, we're not ready at that point when we're called to invest in somebody and reproduce Jesus yet, okay? But, but the growth scale says that we can. Jesus desires to grow us to a place to where we can, to where we can invest in somebody so that they can come and know Jesus, follow Jesus, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you to where we get to that point. But it takes a while. And so what we have to do is we have to be willing to look in the mirror and we have to say, hey, God, where am I right now? Where am I? And on this particular deal, uh, we've got four stages, just like, just like in, in life. We've got infant, we've got child, we've got young adult, we've got parent. Before that, we've got dead. Here's the truth of the matter. If we have not called in the name of Jesus, been willing to abandon our sin, trusted in Jesus to make us right with God, here's the truth. John tells us that we're dead. John 17, 3 says, For this is eternal life, that they may know you, uh, the one true God, through your Son whom you've sent. Okay, by contrast, if we define, if we don't have this genosco knowledge of God, relational knowledge of God that's only provided through Jesus, through repentance, through trust in Him, hey, we're dead. We're dead. That's the way it is. But, according to Ephesians, we can have life. And that's good. If you want to talk about that this week, man, I would love to buy you breakfast, buy you lunch, buy you dinner, buy you coffee, even a latte. I'm fine with that. A breve if you're really frisky. Would love to talk to you about all of that. So, but if we don't have that, we're dead. We cross that line into born again, and then we immediately do, just like kids come out, crying, smelling, peeing, pooping as an infant. Guess what? Infants can't feed themselves. They don't know what truth is. They need everything handed them. Here's the reality. There are people that have been sitting in church for 50 years, and they're still infants because they can't feed themselves. They can't rightly pick up Scripture and read it and get to know God through His pages. Part of that is laziness. Part of that is because no one's ever invested in them and told them that they need to. So if we're an infant, the first thing that we need to do is realize that we're there and desire to go to grow, to mature. If you're an infant, you know what you need to do? You need to find someone who's not and say, hey, I don't want to stay here. Help me. And if they can't do it, say, hey, can you point me to somebody who can? You come to Stephen, you come to myself, you come to Neil, you come to John. If we can't do it, if we don't have the time or the space to meet with you, we'll point you to somebody who can. Your community group leader, most likely, they're quite capable to do that. 
Jim and Tina Whitworth right here, welts, welts of wisdom and knowledge. Go talk to them. Tina would say, I'd love to teach you how to pray. Jim would say, I'd love to teach you how to break a board and, and about Jesus at the same time. Find people. If you're an infant, find an adult. Say, help me. First thing you got to do is be honest. You go from infant to child. Child, you know the deal. You're a child. You're beginning to feed yourself. You're beginning to verbalize things. You're beginning to understand, but you're not there yet. In, in a child's world, in a child's world, uh, you grow from a place of ignorance to a place of like self-centeredness. Maybe you're a child and you're a believer, and you still think everything's about you. You've church hopped for years because the music wasn't good enough, the teaching wasn't exactly what you wanted, the temperature was a little bit off, because you've made this, this pursuit of Jesus about you. Guess what? You're a child. You need to grow up. I'm not rebuking you. I'm pointing out that we need to grow. If we stop growing, we might as well die. Maybe you're a child. Same response for a child as you are for an infant. You can verbalize it now. You know what you need? You need an adult. You need someone who's further along on the journey than you are, someone who's more spiritual than you are, someone who's actually able to pick up Scripture and apply it to all of us, not just myself, not just their self. You need an adult. Find one. Ask them. Say, hey, this is where I am. They need to be connected to God. They need to be connected to others, the church, a family, and they need to be connected to purpose. Right when you get to that end stage of child, guess what happens? Go and do. Go and do. Because you go from that child stage to a young adult. The young adult, they can say things, they can think for themselves, they can eat on their own, they can begin to verbalize their story, which we talk about a lot, and it's time for them to have responsibility. This is the stage in which two by two the disciples were sent out. Don't take anything for your journey, no bread, no extra robe, no money, nothing like that. Just go, I'm going to take care of you. They had to be grown to a place where they could trust Jesus enough for that to happen. If you're a young adult, you're ready for responsibility. If you're a young adult and you can apply all these things to you, but you don't have responsibility, come to me. Come to Stephen. Come to Neil. Come to our wife. Say, hey, you know what? I need responsibility. And we'll be like, okay, here's a list. Pick one. We got a lot to go around. But here's the big responsibility. It's not just about volunteering and parking cars. At this stage you're beginning to figure out what it means to invest in people with truth. Like the woman at the well, John chapter 4, she just kind of blows all this out of the water because to a degree, she was brand new in what she knew about Jesus, but yet she went right back to her village and she said, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus who told me everything that I'd ever done. Sometimes the best thing that a young adult can do, you're not quite ready to see someone move from death to life because you haven't been brought that far yet, but what you can do is bring them to somebody else who is ready. Young adults, their favorite thing to do, bring people to worship with them. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Hey, you say, hey, I'm, I'm a part of a church. Uh, I'm a part of a faith family in downtown Greenville. Uh, we exist to make disciples who love God, love one another, love the city. You should tell them exactly that. <laughs> See what they do. See if they run. If they run, they're not going to come with you. But if they're like, hey, that sounds pretty good, say, why don't you come next Sunday, 9.30, have a little coffee. Maybe 9.25 if you're super holy. Bring them along. Not a substitute for evangelism. Not a substitute for discipleship. But where you are, maybe that's the best thing you can do. Invite them to community group with you, to be around other believers, to hear truth from other mouths and not just your own. But begin to share your story in the midst. What was my life like before Jesus? How did he grab my attention? How did I respond? How's my life been different since? Begin to share your story. Let the gospel work through that. Let God do what he will in that. 
And then we grow from that to being released into like full-on deal, like full-on ministry. It doesn't mean that you're going to be up here. It doesn't mean that you're going to be up here singing and playing. It doesn't mean any of that, but it does mean that you are at a point now where you can be a spiritual parent, that you can invest the truth in someone, see God multiply that, turn them from death to life, and then you begin to teach them all that I've commanded you. Make disciples. Your job as a parent is to find the infants, to find the child, to find the young adult, and help them move one step down the road to maturity. The goal of a church is to not have all parents, by the way. It'd be great, but guess what? If you have all parents, you have no babies, and at some point you die. The goal of a church is to have a mix of all of these. To have infants, man, to have children, to have young adults, to have parents. All of them doing their part. Some growing, some investing, but all for the glory of God through His power with intentional developed relationships. That's discipleship. Best I can wrap it. So what do you do? I think your first job, our first job, is to take a look at this this week during community groups, and I'm going to go ahead and ask people ahead of time. There's going to be a question, and you're going to have to put your finger on the map and say, I am here. And you're going to confide in your group this week where you are. Don't be embarrassed takes a bunch of infants, a bunch of children, a bunch of young adults, and a bunch of parents to make the kingdom grow. Don't be embarrassed. Just be willing to say, I'm here. Our friends in Sweden, uh, the Haneys, who we partnered with for years, they're missionaries over there. Their whole idea is X plus one. X being figure out where people are, where's that variable, where are they, and then we want to plus one them. We want to get them one step down the road either towards Jesus or down the road in maturity. That's all we want. Where are you? How can we help you get to that next stage? Who can help you get to that next stage? And when you get down that road to maturity, who can you help? Who can you invest in? Here's the one thing I'll say about this, kind of like the caveat about last week. There's no perfect disciple. Sometimes you're going to make it all the way to young adult, maybe even to parent, and you're like a rotary phone, which we don't even have anymore. Something jumps out in front of you, and you hit it, and you go right back. You start thinking like a baby again. In that case, the journey starts over. Lead with repentance. Thank you, God, for my salvation. Help me grow. Help me grow. It's a lot of responsibility. It's how the kingdom grows. It's how the kingdom grows. God working through one individual to show another individual, here's the truth of Jesus. He wants you. He desires for you to follow him. He desires to change you. And he desires to remake you into someone with a bigger purpose than you could ever imagine. Can I help you? It's the kingdom. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you, God, that you have called us to be a family and not individuals. We thank you that, God, your power is on display as individuals invest in other individuals. And as we pour the life that has been given to us into someone else, God, I pray you grow your kingdom as a result. I pray for the men and women that are sitting here now, God, whose many names I know, but God, I know whose names you know. And so, Father, I pray you impress upon them one of two things. Uh, who can invest in them or who can they invest in? One or the other. And, Father, you give them the boldness, you give them the confidence, you give them the power to go after that, to ask an adult for help, to seek out the infant so that they can invest, to teach truth, to model mission, to model dependence on God, to release, to correct when necessary, 
but to love and to maturity. God, I thank you for your plan. I thank you for Jesus, the way that he did it and the way that he calls us to. Impress upon us, God, the need, the desire to not just follow you, to not just be changed by you, but God, to be on mission with you, to do all of those things, to be complete disciples. Thank you, God, for your word. It's in your name we pray.